This podcast has been brought to you with the support of Wise, the account that helps you manage your money all around the world. With a Wise account, you can send, spend, and receive in different currencies fast, all without hidden fees or exchange rate markups. Whether you're traveling through Asia, freelancing in France, or buying that dream property in Oz, Wise is the easy way to connect all your finances internationally. You can even send money home to mum in minutes. Join 16 million customers and learn how the Wise account could work for you by downloading the app or visiting wise.com. Hello, I'm Damien Venuto. It's March 23rd, and this is The Front Page, a daily podcast presented by the New Zealand Herald. Every weekday, we'll be going behind the scenes with journalists and newsmakers to discuss the stories and issues that matter most to you. On today's episode, as Russia continues its brutal attack, Ukrainians are defending their homeland with a resolve that few expected to see. But with Russia reportedly now taking aim at civilian targets and advancing into new territory, the situation for Ukraine is looking bleak. Today we talk to Kiwi war journalist Tom Much about the situation on the ground in Ukraine and whether Russia's tactics will break the spirit of the Ukrainian defence. Tom, you're currently located in Kharkiv. Could you give us a sense of where that is in relation to the wider invasion of Ukraine and why you're currently based there? So Kharkiv is an interesting city because it is one of the easternmost cities of Ukraine and it is probably the biggest Russian-speaking city in eastern Ukraine. Now that means it is very, very close to the Russian border and it was one of the first cities that was hit when the Russians invaded. They tried to push and they tried to ha- take Kharkiv in the first couple of days, but the Ukrainians here resisted very, very strongly. What does the city look like at the moment? Uh, are you seeing a lot of destruction? Honestly, the city has been absolutely wasted. This looks like Grozny in 1995, Aleppo in 2017. God, it looks like Warsaw in 1944. When you walk around the city, it feels like you're in World War II or something. There's just destroyed buildings after destroyed buildings. And these are not like, you know, military compounds. These are schools, hospitals, universities, the council building, just everything. It just goes on and on. It's just endless rubble. Now, the Russians have obviously hit Kharkiv with all they have, essentially. What is your sense of things right now on the ground? Do you feel safe? Well, look, so we're, we're currently in a small city just outside of Kharkiv now. No one is really staying in the centre at the moment because that's when the Russians just pound it full of artillery. When you walk around in the middle of Kharkiv, you just hear artillery going off inbound and outbound about every five minutes. But weirdly enough, the locals you speak to are actually quite calm they're quite chilled out. They just say, look, we're used to this now. This has been our life for the last month. And she was saying this is a pre-revolutionary house, you know, from Imperial Russia, and this is the one that they destroyed. They're bombing their own. It's Russia bombing Russia. The Ukrainian government has implemented a number of measures, including curfews, the use of sirens, the use of bomb shelters to keep the population safe. What are they using in Kharkiv at the moment? It's exactly the same thing, although uh, I'm going to be perfectly honest, no one really pays attention to the sirens. You know, if you hear artillery hit next to you, yeah, then yes, people start to take cover. But look, if the sirens go about every hour or so, if you went underground every time the sirens went off, you wouldn't have any kind of a normal life. And people, to be honest, are just trying their best to absolutely live their normal lives. As a journalist who's based in the relative safety of an Auckland office, 
there are so many beats a journalist can get into. Why are you staying in Ukraine and putting yourself at risk to report this? Uh, I mean, that's a very good question. One I think my mum would probably like a good answer to. So, look, I actually used to work in Parliament, in the British Parliament, as a parliamentary researcher, and we ended up writing a lot about defence and security issues. Now, my issue there was I felt that I couldn't really understand what was going on unless I was on the ground in these conflicts and talking to people who were directly affected by them. And so I came to Ukraine in January when the Russian military buildup was going on on the border to try and ask people, you know, how it was affecting their lives. Then I ended up basically being caught here when, you know, the war started on February the 24th. I just got so many requests for you know, content, copy, and so many people in Ukraine wanting to tell their stories about how they were affected. It's kind of a duty to stay here and report on this, you know, what is probably the most important story in the world at the moment. When Russia started the invasion last month, many international observers thought that the might of Putin's army would quickly overrun the Ukrainian defence. We're now almost a month in. The Ukrainian forces are still holding on. Have you been surprised by the level of resistance the Ukrainians are offering? I have been surprised, not just so much in the level of resistance they, that they've given, but also in how badly the Russian army has done. Look, when I was there in the first couple of days in Kiev, people were saying we expect the city could fall within 72 hours. It's now been more than three weeks and they still haven't taken the outskirt towns of like Bucha and Erpen. I remember talking to people in the first days of the war and they said, we hope we will win. We will do our best to fight. Now, after the Ukrainians have won a lot of military victories, people are looking me in the eye and they're saying strongly, we will win this war. And I think they might be right. Do you see any possibility of the Ukrainians giving up at any stage or relinquishing um, any parts of their cities to the Russians? Not anymore. Not anymore. I've never seen a nation so united about a particular cause that I have in Ukraine. And okay, one of the things that is important to know is that Eastern Ukraine is very, very Russian speaking. It has a lot of cultural and familial ties to Russia. Everyone here hates Russia now more than even Ukrainian speaking Western Ukraine because they feel this is, you know, their brothers and their cousins attacking them, destroying them and planting bombs on them, they will never forgive this. The United Nations says that the war will lead to the largest refugee crisis since World War II, with some reports suggesting that already 3 million refugees have fled Ukraine. Are you seeing any changes in the population of the cities where you've been due to this movement of people? Yes, for sure. I'm going to be honest, the main thing you see now is young men 18 to 60, because they're not allowed to leave Ukraine, all around the streets. Most of them are armed. Most of them are being trained for the fight ahead. Because uh, also, 3 million people have left Ukraine. That does not include the 10 million who have been displaced from inside Ukraine. 10 million people, and it's probably more, have left the cities they live in Ukraine for the relative safety of Western Ukraine or the countryside towns that their family are from. So yes, it's extraordinarily different from how we saw it just before the war. Where are families heading that are perhaps concerned about being put in harm's way? So here's the thing with families. 
is that families know that they have to leave and it's only women and children that can leave and they have to leave the young or even older men behind because they're, they're not allowed to leave Ukraine. They are uh, obligated by law to stay and fight and the Ukrainians do not let them across their borders. Mostly they head towards Western Ukraine. So uh, because Western Ukraine, the fighting has not really reached there. There's been a few rocket or missile strikes, but no serious and heavy fighting. And after they get to Western Ukraine, some of them stay there. Some of them prefer, prefer to move to the safety of European countries to the West, mainly Poland, Romania, Moldova, Slovakia, Hungary. On the topic of people moving around Ukraine in response to the war effort, you've had a strange experience with a Ukrainian-based rugby team. That was absolutely fascinating. I was just in, this was in Odessa about a week ago, where I was just uh, visiting a volunteer centre and, you know, a couple of them came up to me and they just asked, you know, oh, where are you from? And my friend would said he's from Canada. I said, I'm from New Zealand. And one of the guys there was like, wait, you're from New Zealand? I, I trained with Jonah Lomu. No way. You're, you're, you're kidding me. I thought he was joking with me for a moment. Then he got out his phone and he pulled out a photo of him and Jonah Lomu and all his rugby team with him there. And basically what it turned out is that they had been a Ukrainian rugby team that had gone to Marseille in France for a training camp when Jonah Lomu was currently signed to that team. And John Olamu had been one of the guys who had coached them. And he said, look, you know, this was one of the most amazing experiences of my life. I was there when, you know, John took us to watch New Zealand play France. It was the first time I ever saw the Haka. It was the first time I ever saw the All Blacks play live. And he said, look, it was the most important and inspiring experience of my life. Until now, that is, when I have to defend my homeland. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has repeatedly called for NATO to help the military effort by instituting a no-fly zone over his nation. Multiple leaders have declined that request at risk of further escalating the war. The Ukrainian people are defending not only Ukraine, we are fighting for the values of Europe and the world, sacrificing our lives in the name of the future. Are the Ukrainian people angry at the reluctance of the West to get involved? Yes, I think they are. But it's not just about the no-fly zone. So one of the things that I think many Ukrainians are very angry about is that in 2008, NATO declared that Georgia and Ukraine would one day become members of NATO. Now, NATO never instituted any kind of roadmap or potential position for Ukraine to join. However, this extremely infuriated the Russians who said that this is a red line for their national security. I'm not saying they're right about that, but I'm saying that this is how they reacted in 2008. And a lot of Ukrainians are extremely angry that this sent a message to the Russians that Ukraine was a danger to Russian national security. And they think that that is one of the factors for why Russia invaded. But then after all that, NATO will not give them military support. So yes, many of them are absolutely furious about this. But also, I don't think at this point that many Ukrainians really expect NATO to get involved. Many of them have said to me, just give us the weapons and we'll do the job from here. Tom, over the weekend, Vladimir Putin held a nationwide rally where he reiterated the Russian narrative that he was conducting a special military operation to somehow save the Ukrainian people. How do Ukrainians feel when they hear this stuff? 
They hate the Russian narrative. They absolutely despise it. Oh, I'll give you one example. I was outside an apartment block that had just been hit by a missile yesterday. I was talking to, to a couple in their 50s. They were dragging their belongings. Uh, they were literally digging their belongings out of the rubble where their apartment had been. And the woman, her name was Galina, said to me, Russian fascists did this, and my father is Russian. She then went on to say, they're liberating us. It's true. They're liberating us from our apartments. They're liberating us from our families and from our homes. They absolutely despise the Kremlin's narrative that this is somehow Ukraine is being denazified right now. They despise it because they think it's an insult to their people. It's an insult to their history. It's an insult to their culture. All of the familial and cultural and historical links between Ukraine and Russia, especially in the East, are being broken. And I think they're being broken permanently and forever. Over the weekend, I had the opportunity to speak with the Prime Minister of Ukraine. His first comment was to acknowledge the speed of New Zealand's response. While we did not originally have an autonomous sanctions regime, our travel bans and export controls were amongst the first imposed, and this had been noticed by the Prime Minister. The bulk of our discussion centred, though, on the current situation and what more we can do to assist. We have pledged an additional $5 million to support Ukraine as they continue with the defence of their homeland. New Zealand has done what it can to help around changing visa rules and passing a new law allowing the government to sanction Russians. As a New Zealander, are you happy with the level of support offered by New Zealand's government, or would you like to see us do more? Well, look, I have to be honest. New Zealand is in the South Pacific, a million miles away from this conflict. I think that New Zealand has given moral leadership and has done what it says can, but I honestly don't see how New Zealand can really influence a conflict that is thousands of miles away. We've seen reports that Russia and Ukraine are working toward reaching a compromise in peace negotiations. One of the demands that Putin has frequently brought up is his demand for the denazification of Ukraine. What does he mean by this? And since you've been in Ukraine, have you seen any examples of Nazi behaviour? So look, to explain the answer to this question, you have to go a little bit back to the historical context, or at least back to 2013-2014, when the massive protests and riots basically broke out between pro-Europeans and pro-Russians. Now, in that time, there were elements of the Ukrainian far right, such as the Azov Battalion and the right sector, who did who were involved in some of those battles and some of those fights. Now, since then, those movements have largely been quashed. Not only that, when the uh, far-right movements ran for parliament in the last election, they got less than 2% of the vote. Now, the Ukrainian president is also Jewish. The idea that Ukraine is somehow Nazified is a joke. It's completely Russian propaganda. We've seen some of the fighting get close to Ukraine's border with Poland. If it spills over into a NATO country, there's no telling how quickly this could escalate. How afraid are you of the likelihood of this war going nuclear? <sighs> I mean, I guess I'm in for a penny and for a pound here, aren't I? I, I? I just choose not to really think about that. Tom, thanks so very much for joining us. 
and please stay safe. I'll do my best. Thanks so much for having me on. Thanks for listening to today's episode of The Front Page. You can read more about this and other stories in the New Zealand Herald, online at nzherald.co.nz, or tune in to news bulletins across the NZME network. With thanks to our producer and editor, Sean D. Wilson, and executive producer, Ethan Sills. You can follow The Front Page on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts, and tune in tomorrow for another look behind the headlines.